is said that whenever the next large war happens it will happen over water throughout the world piped water supply is 24 bar 7 yeah when you open the tap it should be giving you water directly and it should be potable water right this is the basic minimum service that an institution should give you otherwise what do we do we build some tanks we put pump there we build an overhead tank and in our homes we have an ro system or a uv system or a water filter all these costs are borne by us as individuals because the state fails to deliver good clean water in our taps why is brahmaputra such an important resource to china at the current rate we go as you see with air pollution yes. with solid waste management with our traffic and transportation and now with pollution with our water scarcity and water body we are quickly reaching unlivability next 20 years even in 5 years it will become unlivable we indians also don't demand from our, our institutions if you ask in india how many days do you want water in a week uh, two days is good enough how many hours in, uh, in those two days uh, four hours is good enough we have got into a chalta hai attitude you know we are happy and satisfied with the bare minimum because we are in such a lousy situation yeah. metro stations mein toilets nahi hua karte jab hum ja ke specific group we said ki bhai there should be a toilet the then md said that i am not a sulab saucharya person i am a metro person so it took 3 years of persuasion before toilets came yeah. up in metro stations every building every apartment every institution should be doing remote harvesting then we can avoid floods doesn't matter how rich you are if somebody upstream is leaving the water out you will be drowned can india leave frog to where the china gdp is or where us gdp is in the next 10 to 20 years short answer is no Hi, this is Siddhartha Alwalia. Welcome to the Neon Show. Today, I have a super special guest with me. He has worked for the last 38 years of his life solving the water crisis in India. I welcome Vishwanath Shrikant Ayer sir on Neon Show. So glad to have you sir on the podcast. Thank you, and you can just call me Vishwanath. It will be a pleasure. And you reminded me of my age with the 38 years of experience. <laughs> so I am super excited because uh, we get very few opportunities to host. people like you who have dedicated their life to such an important issue so i want to bring uh, start with a you know background of uh, is said that whenever the next large war happens right it will happen over water because such a crucial resource few of the last wars globally have happened over oil and i think india china war somewhere water was played a key role in that war because china wanted entire of arunachal pradesh not because they wanted more land they have all the land in the world like including taiwan hong kong they wanted the entire brahmaputra river so so want to start with that so let me also start with this very interesting idea that you put forward uh, and put the resource uh, of water in in uh, current situation yes. right we are 3.3 million square kilometers as a land mass we are also a destiny of geology 80 to 90 million years back the himalayas rose and they created the monsoon winds yes. and we get these rains which deliver 4000 billion cubic meters yes. annually right but these 4000 billion cubic meters falls in four months essentially june july august september yes. right now the challenge for india is that we have to hold this four months of water for the rest of the eight months yes. that's the biggest challenge for india however in india itself though the himalayas rose up what we now call the indo-gangetic plain banaras all the way to hugli kolkata from delhi sank and the silt from the himalayas thanks to the monsoon rains was deposited here over 300 million years this is the most fertile place on earth the indo-gangetic plain 
This supports a population of 600 million people, the world's densest population. All this was possible because of the waters that we had and the soil that was there with us, which was very productive soil. And that's the reason why India is the largest populated country in the world, because our land is very fertile and productive. We have enough water resources and we've learned over years to manage this water well. We've also learned to give good quality water. You mentioned 2 lakh people dying, but India has invested the largest sum of money in what's called the Swachh Bharat mission in getting clean sanitation. And now the Jal Jeevan mission to get clean water because of clean water and sanitation. Our average life in independence, which was 35 years, is now 72 years. We are a very healthy population. We are a growing population. We are a young population. So we've achieved a lot with water. What we are now facing is the ecological limits are reached. How do we now manage water with old wisdom, but with new technology? That's the challenge. And I think we have solutions. The only thing is, how do we go about it? And, and let's talk about uh, one of the largest wars that happened in India, the India-China war. Right. Uh, why is such Brahmaputra such an important resource to China? Right. Are there not any Chinese rivers that flow through China that they are focused on one part of land of India that is Arunachal and uh, the so river? We've got to also understand, like I spoke to you, China is 9.9 .9 million square kilometers. Yeah. The USA is roughly the same. India is 3.3, one third the size. Yeah. But when you come to arable land, that's the land that can be cultivated. India is actually in the same position as the USA and China. So we are blessed with a lot of fertile land, unlike China, where only the eastern part of China is productive. Yes. The western part is essentially desert and the southern part is cold desert, right? And so for them, the resource is to be competed for. And a growing economy like India's or China's demands a lot of water. If the economy grows at 7.5% GDP, water consumption also increases at 7.5%. That then causes the conflict. But there are other territorial ambitions that China has. Perhaps that's a cause for discussion in an external uh, affairs uh, argument. However, uh, rest assured that if we are able to manage the Brahmaputra, which falls within India, we will not lose much water to the Chinese uh, dreams of building dams because roughly 80% of the water that flows in the Brahmaputra actually is rainfall, which falls on the tributaries of the Brahmaputra. And uh, one of the reasons that has been highlighted historically is of the entire Brahmaputra, right? It originates in China, but 70% yes. of it flows through India Correct. and 30% is in only in China. Correct. So it starts in the in Tibet and it starts in the Manasarovar area where the Ganges also yes. starts, Ganga starts, Yamuna starts, in Brahmaputra, Mekong, all of these rivers start yes. there in Tibet, what is Tibet, and it flows and then it comes to India. But if we are able to internally manage our waters well, yeah. we should not face a threat. We have to protect our land integrity. Yes. We have to protect our borders. No doubt about that. But we need not obsessively worry about the control that China will exert on us. If we do our job right, we are good. In 1950s and 60s, India signed a treaty with Pakistan. Yes. Where India got between the Indian, the waters, the rivers that flow between the Indo-Pakistan region, only the three rivers were, were given to India. The rest of the water flows to, to Pakistan. And any insight around, around right, what, what happened during that time? So water is to be shared. The industry is given an, as an example globally as to how two countries can go to war three times, yet be in a position to share the waters. Uh, yes, we were given three of the five Punjab 
Punjab, the five rivers which yeah. flows through Punjab. Three was with India, two was uh, with Pakistan. But we've done a reasonably good job with the waters that we've collected and we've managed. And the upstream, downstream angle of conflict will always be there. It's between India and Pakistan, but it's also within India. Karnataka and Tamil Nadu is a classic case with Kaveri where we disagree with water. However, our statesmanship and our ability to be concerned about humanity as a whole comes from looking at the entire river basin and sharing the waters rather than trying to see that we capture it. So the Indus Water Treaty incubated by the World Bank is a model globally, and we should be proud of the model that we are able to stand up to those values that India always shows to the rest of the world what we stand for. Uh, Vasudev Kutumbakam. Vasudeva Kutumbakam, but also concern for humanity at large. Absolutely right. So now you mentioned Kaveri water. It's one of my favorite topics because uh, uh, I migrated to Bangalore with my family five years ago. I was living in Whitefield part of it. And I, every, every day I saw five tankers coming. Correct. It piqued my curiosity. And someday when there was zero water in the society, it was said that this is happening because of Kaveri water crisis. <laughs> I read about it but could never fully understand it. If you can go back to history, right? What's, why is this conflict of Kaveri water? How did this happen? And what are we doing to solve it? So, uh, as in any river basin, as in the Kaveri river basin, it's the delta area of the river, which is the most fertile. We learn about it in our fifth and sixth geography classes, right? So, obviously, the delta portion of the Kaveri is Tanjavur in uh, Tamil Nadu, which is the rice bowl of India. If Punjab is the wheat bowl of India, then the Tanjavur belt is the rice bowl of India. For a long time, the people of Tamil Nadu cultivated two crops of rice. With the introduction of the Green Revolution, they started to cultivate the third crop of rice. This was to bring food security to the country as a whole. So that was the outlook. And the more crops you grow, the more stomachs you're able to fill. And that's the reason it is. But at the same time, Bangalore as a city started to develop in the 70s, 80s, and actually in the 90s. Now, water had to be transferred from agriculture to urban areas and to industrial areas. But the river water was already fully utilized. In 8 to 9 out of 10 years, the water does not even reach the sea. It's what is called a closed basin. So the dispute started off with first right to water, which is called the right of prior appropriation, or the new right to water, when the new right is coming up right so there are two principles globally one is called the hormones doctrine which is the secretary of state in the united states hormone who put this principle saying that all rain that falls on my land belongs to me and then there's a law of prior appropriation saying that i am been using the water historically so therefore i have established a right to it between these two lies what's called the helsinki principle or the helsinki doctrine which means that there is some respect for prior appropriation but there's also a respect for the new use that has to come up and that sharing has to happen unfortunately because the river basin is broken into administrative boundaries which are based on linguistics we tend to go to war and the uh, we tend to not go to war but disagree with each other vehemently and vigorously and that's because uh, of the new emerging water demand uh, which is coming from cities like Bangalore and places in Karnataka, which need irrigation water. And Tamil Nadu fears that it's going to lose out on water. And in one of our very interesting conversations that it was either not Karnataka or Tamil Nadu right now, it was when British partitioned India, it was Madras residency. And then the Indian government had to linguistically separate the states. But I think uh, the thought was not that how will the resources get shared among the state. Yes, so, so the grievance that uh, 
Karnataka has that uh, during a time when the British were dominating the Madras presidency, they did not allow the construction of dams in uh, the then old Mysore state. The KRS dam, which is the pride for uh, Karnataka, was took years before it was allowed to yeah. be built and it was allowed to be built at the same time as Metur, which is double the size of KRS, right? And so Tamil Nadu has been seen to be appropriating more more of the waters because of the powers they have. But if you go to Tamil Nadu, and I'm a Kannadiga, but then I also see the worldview from the Tamil lens, and it's not good to be divided on linguistic or state basis because we are Indians first and then yeah. we are Kannadigas or Tamilians. If we keep that worldview, one can understand the fear that comes from losing out on something which is a tradition and culture. If I've been using water to grow rice, and if somebody upstream now starts to take away the water, I fear whether I will be able to grow rice. So we have to be sympathetic to both the states and especially the farmers of both the states and see what we can do to share the water judiciously. I'll give you just one more example yeah. on this particular uh, lens, which we have not seen so far. For example, Bangalore's demand on water is about 1,450 million liters per day from the Kaveri, right? And this is seen as the city is taking away the water from farmers. However, Bangalore only takes 6.66% of Karnataka's allocation of Kaveri waters and supports roughly 50% of Karnataka's population in the Kaveri basin. It also generates 70% of the GDP of the state. This 1,450 million liters, which comes from the Kaveri, generates 70% of the GDP of the state. GDP of Bangalore is estimated as $350 billion. Imagine that's the kind of money which goes as GST, tax, and which supports all sorts of social infrastructure services, schools, hospitals, colleges, roads. Everything is supported by this. Actually, 1,450 million liters coming in the river water, right? Then Bangalore does something remarkable. It takes this treated water, water which we have consumed in our houses, into sewage treatment plants, treats it and sends it to Kolar and Chikbalapur, surrounding districts which are drought prone and climate change affected, and fills 200 lakes, which means that the groundwater table comes up and farmers have assured water. Groundwater tables in Kolar and Chikbalapur had plummeted to 1,800 feet. Now they're at 20 feet, 30 feet in some places. Open wells have water. Farmers have livelihood security. In turn, the city has food security because if the farmer grows food, it comes back to the city and the city has food security. So what the Kaveri water has done is it's made a pit stop in Bangalore for 12 hours and then gone to the farmer's field. So Bangalore is not consuming any water at all. And when all the projects are done, when all the treated wastewater will go to these surrounding districts, it will be the world's second largest project of its kind, next only to that of Mexico City. So therefore, we have to see multiple uses of water. We have to see that urban and agricultural uses combined together and that ecology and environment is regenerated. When the lakes are full, birds come flocking back, biodiversity increases, livelihoods are created. All this is possible and we are showing the way. Now, if more and more cities and towns along the Kaveri do this as an example, I don't think that we should be fighting unnecessarily over the water. Solutions are there. We need a pragmatic politics to be able to push that solution. So can you go back to the history of Bangalore? Right, There's a very interesting anecdote that you told that. Yes. How was Bangalore formed through volcanic eruptions? Right. So there's also a geology to Bangalore's history as much as there it is to India with the Himalayas growing up. Here, the volcanic action resulted in the plateau coming up to 920 meters above sea level, which, where you can go to Lalbagh and see the rocks, which are 3,600 million years old. One of the oldest rocks in uh, in India is in Bangalore. This upheaval, which took us to 920 meters, gave us the 
beautiful climate that we have and the rainfall pattern that we have. So we have eight months of rain, 63 days of rain, 970 millimeters of rain, all that because we are at this altitude, which geology gave us. But when geology pushes you up, it also pushes you away from the river. So therefore, every drop of water that we need has now to come up uh, 100 kilometers and 300 meters up, right, making one of Asia's costliest water. The old Bangalore did not need a river. It depended on the local tanks, as we call them, the lakes that were there, and the wells. The tanks filled the earth, and the wells water was used, which was filtered, and people used that water. But in 1874, 75, and 76, we had three continuous years of drought. In those years of drought, the lakes dried up, the wells dried up. About a lakh people died in Bangalore. In the old Mysore presidency, people came here in search of water and food, and people died. The government then decided never again. Never again will people die for scarcity of water and scarcity of food. So therefore, the first project was taken up to bring water from the river Arkavati, which is a tributary of the Kaveri from Hesargatta, bring it to the city using steam engines, wood-fired steam engines, as early as 1896. Since then, our dependency on local water bodies has stopped. We depend on rivers because of the memory of the drought and famine. And we've paid scant attention to the tanks and lakes. Now we are revisiting them because we now understand that both local waters and outside waters have to combine together. and We have to depend on the local waters too, as much as the outside waters. And what has been the history of lakes? Like you mentioned earlier that there were thousand lakes in Bangalore. Correct. So the lakes themselves have a thousand two hundred year old history, which is there in inscription stones. In most of the lakes, there are stones carved in granite, which dates the lakes. So um, Hebbald, for example, is dated to 820 AD. Al-Sur is dated to somewhere around that time, 980. So a thousand, thousand two hundred years back, our ancient forefathers threw earthen dams across valleys and held back the water flows. And this water was then there for the rest of the six months to grow crops, essentially, but also to fill aquifers and wells and to to take the water. These were cascading set of uh, water bodies because the water flows in the valley in one direction. And we created this tank ecosystem, which is a wonderful cultural heritage we have, which is a water heritage we have. But their primary purpose was irrigation. The moment a city comes in, what happens is a city generates wastewater. Now, the same wastewater or sewage goes into these tanks. And then the tanks become smelly, mosquito breeding. And people themselves say, no, we don't want this. Take it away. Anyway, our drinking water is coming from pipes from far away. So the tanks are lost. Malaria was one reason why we lost a lot of tanks. Now we are realizing that we can revive these tanks and wetlands. They can be made uh, disease-free and with fresh water, and they can be a source of not only recreation, but also biodiversity and functionality for the city. So we are revisiting those tanks. And how many lakes we have lost? We've lost a lot of lakes. What we now have are about 210 tanks in Bangalore. We must have lost about 800 tanks and lakes. And what is the reason of losing? So the reason, as I prescribed to you, the primary purpose why the tank was built was agriculture, was to grow rice. Once rice was no longer needed and real estate prices shot up, if a square feet of land is 4,000 rupees a square foot or 10,000 rupees a square foot, would you leave it as water or would you want to sell it by building an apartment? So greed, urbanization, the destruction of water quality, the coming of diseases such as plague and malaria and cholera, all this combination resulted in the tanks being filled up and urbanization coming up. So there's no villainy in this. There is only an incremental sadness to the approach that we have taken in destroying what is a heritage. 
but it's good that we have realized it now and we are trying to recover it and uh, it's a one of the very famous bus stops in bangalore right i think it's maheshwaram bus the shanti nagar bus stops it said that that was a water body that's the majestic bus stop the largest yeah. bus stop in front of the city yeah. uh, city station was dharmabuddhi kare the largest water body that was there but again that water body would dry up during uh, the drought seasons or during bad yeah. years of rain and uh, it had become a swamp and a messy place and so they filled it up and built a bus stand now we would not have done it yes. but with the knowledge that we had in the 60s and 70s we did that and not only that the stadium that we have was kempambudi kere which was one of the most beautiful lakes that uh, the the indoor stadium that we yes. uh, working on next to malia hospital so like that many of the stadium many of the tanks have become bus stands hockey stadiums or athletic stadiums and so on and so forth yeah and and in the last 20 years uh, because of uh, political reasons or governance reasons many of these lakes uh, got acquired by builders for cheap they filled it up that's what i've heard in folklore they got filled it up with sand drained the water and now they built buildings uh, that has been really been true not only did the private builders do this but also the bda itself the okay. government organization filled up lakes and built uh, layouts and uh, apartments on it it came from a sense of finding no purpose for the tank yeah. and seeing it as only a bad uh, water body and therefore to convert it to land now we realize that it's very important for flood control for recharge of groundwater and we are now trying to retrieve it also lake is one of the most famous lakes yes. in bangalore this one such story that cafe coffee day wanted to build in the center of alsur lake a ccd center so that they could transport people about it's yeah. the military that <laughs> intervened that because part of the lake is controlled by uh, so here's the thing if you want to protect a lake you need an institution which has monies to be able to do that protection yes. it cannot happen on its own so we created something called the lake development authority yeah. thanks to a high court ruling which a lot of activists are taking yeah. the state to court but we did not give them any financial budgets yeah. now the only way they can raise budgets is through what is called a ppp model of public private yeah. participation and that private participation will only come in if there's some profit profit in it and some money flows yeah. right financial flows so what was imagined in hebbal lake was the tatas would put up a hotel and in also lake it was that um, cafe coffee day would put up a restaurant the only reason being that that's the only way you can earn money yeah. to protect the lake now we realize that it's a government asset and taxpayer money has to go in to protect the lakes it should not be private money and yeah. the lakes are common pool resources where everybody should have access without having to pay a fee that people should be able to go there like we go to parks yeah. or forests and be able to enjoy the lake so that's the new thinking that's coming and we're working on it now you mentioned about a governance failure that happened that has led to a current Correct. situation that have been what's the history and what has been like what happened really in governance failure so what happens is whenever society faces a problem it has to create institutions which can then sort the problem yeah. right so when bangalore faced water scarcity in the 1960s it created the bangalore water supply and sewerage board a utility which had the capability to pump water from a far away source and bring it to the city and then also be able to set up sewerage networks and sewage treatment plants now because the utility was created it was then followed by the delhi jal board the chennai metro water and sewerage board and so on so forth yeah. other cities built institutions which knew how to design for water and to design for sewerage networks so these were all 20th century institutions in the 21st century which is what we occupy water is no longer one of supply side this in the 20th century there was water everywhere you built a dam you 
use pumps and you brought it to yeah. the city. So that, that's the skill you needed. Now, demand management, ecological restoration, social justice. These are the angles that which we need to um, have our institutions with. Just to give you an example, the Bangalore Water Supply and Storage Board does not have a single hydrogeologist. The city has 500,000 bore wells at least. It pumps out 600 million liters per day. But the institution does not have a single hydrogeologist who is able to understand groundwater. So groundwater does not exist for the institution which is supposed to be supplying water to the citizens of Bangalore. So unless institutions are capacitated, have the right human resources skills. And in the case of the river basin, for example, if we have a river basin institution which understands the river, manages the old forest, manages the sand, manages the catchment so that the river flows continuously and clearly, the river will not be managed. We'll fight about the waters. We don't have a river basin institutions. So we need to create the right institutions and we need to capacitate these institutions with human resources and financial resources to be able to deliver solutions. Otherwise, we'll be putting Band-Aid on chickenpox. What chickenpox needs is a vaccination. You can't treat every postule and be able to find a solution, right? So governance is at the heart of our water problems. It's not water, it's governance and it's good management. And good governance means creating the right institutions and equipping the right people in the right institutions who are accountable, but are also capable of delivering solutions. What are the solutions that you and other activists have been proposing to the government to solve these issues. One of the things which urban areas have to do is to take an approach called an integrated urban water management approach. Water is no longer something to be brought in pipes, but you have to look at rainwater and see how rainwater harvesting can make best use of uh, the rain that falls on our head. We have to look at our tanks and lakes, which is our surface water, see how we can create wetlands, increase biodiversity and protect these tanks and lakes, surface water bodies. India is a groundwater civilization. We are the world's largest user of groundwater. As I told you, this city itself has 500,000 bore wells and 600 million liters per day. So we'll have to look at aquifers and groundwater, see how we can recharge the aquifer, see how we can manage the aquifer from pollution, make sure that it's free. And then we have to take used water or wastewater and convert it to a resource. So IUWM then has this principle that all these forms of water has to be governed as one unit and then you have a solution. But if you are going to govern it separately, like pipe water with the BWSSB, lakes with the BBMP, groundwater with the groundwater authority, then there's very little coordination for solutions. Let's get the IUWM approach. Let's get the institution to look at it and let's involve citizens as part of the solution. Every citizen should be harvesting rain, should be conserving water, not wasting water, should, if possible, in apartments have wastewater treatment plants with recycled water, and everybody should recharge groundwater wherever it's possible. If that happens, then we don't have a problem at all. And you mentioned there, uh, the urban architects, they don't know the historical significance of how water bodies are built, and that is causing a lot of havoc. In one of your earlier videos, you have said that the way the parkings have been made in mm-hmm. urban, right? Everything is below the ground. That's right. So that's a very important thing that we are now learning. Like the water below our feet is very important and very precious. That is what filled the wells. But unfortunately, we are doing double, triple basement parking. We are destroying the shallow aquifer. We are pumping out water, which is absolutely clean and scarce, throwing it into the drains for six to eight months. There was a five-star hotel built close to Mount Carmel College and one near Makri Circle. They pumped out groundwater for four to six months, completely emptying all the wells in the surrounding areas, 
emptying the aquifer totally, then you build these basement parkings and you put the car. The car is not only a villain when it's creating traffic jams, but even when it is parked, it's a villain there because it's damaging the aquifer and our water resources. So we have to think of our master plan and building bylaws by which these aquifers are protected. For example, if there has to be a parking created in a groundwater sensitive zone, we should have stilt parkings and FSI should permit the, uh, the apartment to go up rather than to go down. But in areas where there is no aquifer that is to be damaged, their basement parking can be allowed. This will come from a clear understanding of geology, hydrogeology and groundwater for which we need to do a detailed groundwater map of the city and then plan. So all these things have to talk to each other. And then why, when government is aware of the issues, why is government... It's not, not aware of the issue. The thing is, these are new emerging issues. And as I told you, if the institution does not have a hydrogeologist, who do you take this case yes. to, right? You can only write about it in the papers or do a podcast and talk about it. So one, there is a broadcaster, but very important, there's a receiver. The receiver should be able to understand what the broadcaster is giving and then be able to act on it. We are not creating the institutions which have the capability to listen and then to act on it. So therefore, we have to work on modifying our institutions which then will be capable of acting i think part of the reason is our institutions have been rather than responsive reactionary they wait for a large crisis to happen truly yeah so it's a the in economic terms, you have something called the Kuznets curve, which says that economies which are growing take time before they can mature and create institutions. Yes. Europe cleaned up its water bodies only in the 60s, 70s. The Thames in London was cleaned up only 20 years back, right? So it's yeah. not way back that it's cleaned up. So when you get a certain GDP and you get a certain per capita income, then you have the monies to be able to invest in protecting the environment and cleaning up the pollution sources. In India, it will take another 20 years to do it. We have to be patient in the 20 years not to do permanent damage. Whatever damage we do should be rectifiable, should be correctable, right? Only then will we be able to put our act together to clean it up. This is the inevitable cause of development in the capitalist economy, in the consumer economy. And we've got to be prepared for that. Patience is the name of the game. And I think there's enough awareness on water bodies right now, at least in Bangalore, that every day there is something in the newspaper regarding uh, fixing of the water bodies. So That is there. But still we have not created an institution which is completely responsible for water body. It still requires the revenue department to do the boundary setting. And then it requires the BDA or the BBMP to put the fence. And then yet we are not able to protect it from pollution, from sewage, because the BWSs we cannot act and so on and so forth. With all these public pressure, with all the high court and NGT working on it, Yet we lack the right institution to govern. So you can imagine how long it will take for us to be able to repair. Right now it's in the, the responsibility of the KTCDA, the Karnataka Town and um, the Karnataka Tank Conservation Development Authority, right? But that's a minor irrigation department institution. It doesn't understand urban waters as much as it does rural waters, right? So we still need to fix the institution. Yeah. Time. Has it ever happened that before the institution understood there has been a permanent damage of a natural yes. resource that is yes. never recouped. Yeah, yeah. So there are many permanent damages that we have created. The bus stand that you were mentioning, which is majestic, we cannot now reclaim that lay yeah. in the foreseeable future. However, when our economy really grows, perhaps at one point of time, we can relocate the bus stand and then get yeah. back to a water body. But there is permanent damage in aquifers in um, lakes and in terms of pollution of rivers, both the Dakshin Pinakini and Vrishpavati are in really a bad state of affairs, which may be irretrievable. 
so one concern we never had travel outside to india to develop country beat australia us uh, is that the tap water is the drinking water yes. that is the bare minimum see in, in, in throughout the world piped water supply is 24 bar 7 yeah when you open the tap it should be giving you water directly and it should be potable water right this is the basic minimum service that an institution should give you otherwise what do we do we build some tanks we put pump there we build an overhead tank and in our homes we have an ro system or a uv system or a water filter all these costs are borne by us as individuals because the state fails to deliver good clean water in our taps when will the state deliver those good clean water when we we'll pay the true cost of water if we pay the true cost of water to the state then we can demand from the state that the taps should give us drinking water the savings in the economy will be enormous all the coping costs that we put in will can easily go to the institution and the institution can do a fantastic job but we indians also don't demand from our, our institution acha kitna din pani chahiye if you ask in hindi how many days do you want water in a week uh, two days is good enough how many hours in, uh, in those two days uh, four hours is good enough we have got into a chalta hai attitude which not only you know we are happy and satisfied with the bare minimum because we are in such a lousy situation yeah. whereas what we should demand is that our institutions deliver 24 bar 7 water that every drop of sewage be collected and treated and only then released to the environment with that demand with that right the responsibility is that we should also be willing to pay for the true cost of water if we pay the true cost of water there is no water scarcity there is no pollution we don't pay the true cost of water we can keep on screaming and crying but then situation will not change on the ground and what is the true cost of water the true cost of water is when we release it back to nature at the same quantity and quality at which we took it from nature if i take 100 liters from the river kaveri which is pure water i use it in my home i have a bath i put it in my washing machine i should be able to collect it treat it and we have the technology to the same quality at which we took it and release it in the river at the same point from where we took it right and release so that there's no net loss to the river yes. and then it's back into nature without damage or without any pollution and without any loss to the quantity if citizens in bangalore pay 95 rupees a kiloliter at current price 1000 liters 1000 liters 95 rupees by say 1000 liters we will be able to get the true cost of water and the ecological cost of water and no damage to the environment we are willing to pay 5 rupees for 20 liters ro water we are willing to pay 110 rupees to the tanker wala or sometimes 150 rupees a kiloliter to the tanker wala why don't we get into a compact with the bwssb pay them 95 rupees a kiloliter and make sure that our environment is cleaned up and when the willingness is there in citizens right why why is not it happening so there is a willingness to pay but there's no willingness to charge and this is the negative dividend of democracy because political parties are loath to charge people higher sums because they think they'll lose votes uh, and that the opposition will lay claims to those votes saying that you're raising the prices but in this short run cycles of 5 years we are losing out on the big picture and it's causing great damage to the environment in india somewhere and very quickly we'll have to rectify that otherwise we are in big trouble and do you think uh, the current cities right bangalore delhi mumbai is almost said that soon uh they are achieving unlivability index at the current rate we go as you see with air pollution with yes. solid waste management with our traffic and transportation and now with pollution with our water scarcity and water body we are quickly reaching unlivability next 20 years 
20 years is too late. Already you read in the papers day before that we've hit 1.5 degree rise in climate yes. um, for the whole of the last year. If we hit 2 degrees Celsius, it will, with the urban heat island and um, fast evaporation of water, even in 5 years it will become unlivable. Five years. That's a very short period of time. Five years is already too long. We need to prepare climate action plans where we are uh, ready to learn to live with these higher temperatures and protect those workers who are most sensitive to it. I mean, imagine a traffic policeman standing in uh, the hot sun with that air pollution. Imagine our uh, solid waste workers out there in the heat. Um, These are frontline workers. Imagine the sewage treatment plant workers. They are all facing the heat and the climate change and they are essential workers without them the city will collapse so we'll have to take care of the mitigation and adaptation make sure that those plans are rolling out and that we do these things otherwise it will be complete uh, chaos so for example i think everybody would agree to it Uh, today starting from march to june we require air conditioners in bangalore around five years ago we required only fans i had never heard of an air conditioner in Bangalore. I think around 15 years ago, there was not even fans required throughout the year in Correct. Bangalore. Correct. That's the state of... So, let me tell you, I, I don't mean to boast, but uh, I live in a house and it's a single unit house. I don't have a fan in my house. No, forget an AC, I don't have a fan in my house. It's a question of design and the city shows what design can do. So, I have a basement. The earth that I've taken from the basement, we've built our house with it. So, it's an earth block home. On the terrace, I have a white terrace one for one portion where I collect all the rainwater and use it for drinking and cooking. And on the other, I grow paddy. It's a green terrace so that it moderates the climate. And for the terrace, I use gray water. That's from the water from the bathroom to irrigate the... I don't put demand on fresh water. I just use bath water and washing machine water to grow it. Design can help us to live without a fan even now. But then design has to be backed by a neighborhood which is conducive to yes. that. Densities which are con- conducive to that. Greenery parks and trees which are conducive which enhances that we have the design skills we don't seem to somehow bring it all together to actually implement it on the ground and as you said if you stick an ac to a apartment what are you doing with the heat that you're throwing out you're simply increasing the ambient inside of the house is cool but outside is getting warmer and if everybody gets into a competitive ac mode what happens to the city's weather and temperature it'll only go sky high, right? So we have to move away from a negative cycle, which is the AC cycle, to a positive cycle, which eschews the consumption of energy and emission of carbon dioxide and find solution for us. This city has the single largest number of modern earth homes, more than 10,000 earth homes, homes built with earth. No other city in the world has it. We need to encourage those kind of designs, those kind, that kind of architecture, which will completely eliminate the need for external energy and air conditioners. I think solar got a lot of visibility because of uh, the benefits, even the government subsidies that solar come with. Correct. Right. But solar is patchwork, right? So the real crisis is uh, is in lessening consumption. Solar only pushes away the pollution to some other place. Yeah. Uh, the manufacturing place and then what do you do with the solar rejects the photovoltaic cells which remain with you so all those challenges are there in the short term yes it's a better answer than thermal power or coal power um, right coal based engines but uh, demand management is at the heart of things and better design is at the heart of things the consumption had to have to reduce there's no other solution afford it if you are at 1.5 the most experts suggest that two degrees rise in temperature is a given 
and that four is not unthinkable, two is catastrophic for biodiversity, four will be complete destruction of what we know as the web of life. And the time is now. If carbon is at the heart of climate change, yes. then water is at the heart of the impact of climate change. It's completely altering the hydrological cycle. A hotter atmosphere and a hotter ocean means more evaporation and a hotter atmosphere means more humidity in the atmosphere, which means that when it rains, it will be heavily intense rains. Floods will be the norm. But then once the rains stop, there will be dryness. Yeah. So it's an alternate drought and flood at the same time in the same month almost with climate change. This is frightening, especially for the younger generation which is coming up. We should take responsibility for our kids and grandkids and do something. This, this is a part of our inheritance that we give to them. Absolutely. And, and it's unforgivable that a generation so destroys the world that it is unlivable for the young younger generation. Like for example, in Delhi, uh, one third of the kids have breathing issues, either asthma or chronic bronchitis. Yes. Right? And that's the air pollution that we've left to them as a yes. legacy. That, this is, how is it, uh, I mean, those kids should sue us and demand reparations and demand corrections. Yeah. And and you see similar thing happening even in other parts of the Indian cities for different reasons because we are not taking action against the climate change. This form of capitalism and economy is relentless in its urbanization. We are now at, if you take any figure, between 28% urbanized to 40% urbanized, yes. depending on how we define urban areas. Most economies in the world have ended up with 80 to 85% urbanization. Imagine 1.6 billion people, 80% urbanized, living in 4,400 cities, mostly the mega cities that, that they're living in. You ain't seen nothing yet. This level of urbanization that will come from distress migration in rural areas and the attraction of the city itself will cause tremendous pressure on our urban infrastructure unless we plan and invest in it. So it's a catastrophe waiting to happen unless we take quick action. And uh, Bangalore infrastructure, everybody's aware of, right? Yes. Uh, for example, one of the issues is when the rain starts in right. April and May, every year there is flooding in right. the outer parts of Bangalore. Yes. Uh, like Divyashri 99 is one of the most popular societies in Bangalore, known for its millionaires. But the joke is, every year it gets submerged. That's true. Uh, why does it happen? Like, is, is it not planned? The infrastructure is not planned? Two things are happening in the city. One, because of climate change and urban heat island, the intensity of rainfall is increasing. Yeah. We were previously designing for a 60 millimeter per hour intensity rainfall. Now, Rainfall intensities for short bursts of time are recorded at 240 millimeters an hour. 180 millimeter per hour is the norm. So you're getting a large volume of water in a very short duration, which our stormwater drains or rainwater pipes are not prepared for. One. Two. Previously, when it used to rain, there used to be enough absorption capacity in the city where water would percolate into the soil, into the ground. Now we are paved so much. So the runoff has increased from what used to be 15% to 95%. You have a fourfold increase in intensity of rainfall, a sixfold increase in the runoff. The combination of both means that it overwhelms our uh, capacity to drain the city. So, therefore, floods will be the norm as things go along, unless every house, every residence becomes responsible for what we have now designed as a policy for Bangalore for 60 millimeters of rainfall, saying that for Every square meter of roof area, 60 millimeter of rain, you either hold on in your rainwater tanks or you recharge through a recharge well. Then you have both climate change and flooding mitigation, but also the groundwater table coming up. 
This has to be sold to every citizen in Bangalore. Every building, every apartment, every institution should be doing rainwater harvesting. Then we can avoid floods. Otherwise, doesn't matter how rich you are. If somebody upstream is leaving the water out, you will be drowned. You, you can't fight against nature and the destruction that you're causing to it. This is a community effort, right? Individually, you can't yeah. live in an island or a bubble for long. But, but it's uh, at uh, loggerheads with capitalism where everybody is thinking individually for themselves and building the largest houses possible, which are getting submerged during those times. Yes. So you have Samaj, Sarkar and Bazaar, as yeah. Rohini Nilikini puts it so beautifully. So the Bazaar is the marketplace. The Bazaar cannot be the sole determinant of how we live. Samaj has to say these are the norms yeah. and we have to follow. And Sarkar has to make sure the regulations are in place so that they are followed. The master plan and the bylaws and what can be built and what cannot be built. All three need to work together synchronously. If one of them dominates, then there is an imbalance and that causes a problem. Do you see somewhere in the future or is it already in the plans that government enforcing the solution that you told that have these kind of tanks? So, this is best expressed in Hindi because we seem to listen to the danda more than persuasion. Yeah. What, with the rainwater harvesting bylaw as an example, what Jailalita, Madam Jailalita, who's the chief minister of Tamil Nadu, did was she said that in six months you do rainwater harvesting or I'll cut off your electricity supply. So people complied very well. In Bangalore, we have said ki bhaiya kar lo, aapke liye achha hai. It's good for you. Please do it. Otherwise, we'll give you a 25% increase in the water bill. Now, that water bill is so ridiculously yes. low that 25% doesn't make a difference. Six months later, we'll increase it by 50%. People are willing to pay that 50% increase, fine, but not do rainwater harvesting. How do we create a democratic society where people act as citizens? We clamor for our rights, but we've also to do our fundamental duties and carry out our responsibilities. If the citizenry does not join in the solution-seeking space, if we just simply get greedy about ourselves, then there is no lit- uh, solution that comes to us. We have to mature as a society. Our uh, sense of responsibility to others, like for example in Japan or in Singapore, everybody is taking care of the other, right? That's the sense that we have to develop as the generation progresses, if we don't do that, then we are in trouble. But as a society, let's consider the whole of India. Uh, though our GDP is fifth largest in the world, the per capita GDP is among the lowest, right? Does it, that kind of a society allows every citizen to strive for it as compared to Singapore so or Japan? Again, again, let's take the example of Japan, right? After the Second World War, when Japan was destroyed, its GDP was even lower than what India's was, right? It was the sense of community which got Japan to where it is now, right? So how do we develop this culture of uh, citizenry in a world which is class and caste ridden is a challenge for us. And we have to appeal to the better sense amongst ourselves and aspire to be good citizens. And so with education, with children, we need to develop that sense of togetherness of community as we grow up. Mushkil lagta hai, lekin naamumkin to nahi hai. Imagine karna thoda tough hai, ki 1.4 billion, 140 crore loog ko kaise aap is cheez ke liye unite karoge. Aap Ram Mandir ko unite kar sakte ho. Mai maha jana nahi chata hoon, lekin ye mushkil sa maamla hai. Lekin ye hai na, ki unless you have dreams, you don't have narratives. Unless you have narratives you don't 
see yeah. what you're working yeah. for. So if you look at the media, we're full of sad stories, yeah. problems, problems. There's nothing that's telling us what we should aspire for, yeah. what we should do to get there, right? So those kind of leaders have to emerge from the local, from the gram panchayat level to the city level, to the state level, to the national level, who will then attract a momentum towards betterness. And that will only come through such conversations that we are having. And it's a larger narrative that has to be built up as a societal good as to what we aspire to do. But just I said that नामुमकिन नहीं है ये हमारा समाज था एक जमाने में कैपिटलिज्म हैज मेड अस इंडिविजुअल्स कैपिटलिज्म हैज ब्रोकन अस फ्रॉम द कम्युनिटी स्ट्रक्चर व्हाट इज द बेनोवेलेंट कैपिटलिज्म दैट विल ब्रिंग टुगेदर कम्युनिटीज इज समथिंग दैट वी नीड टू फाइंड एग्जांपल्स कम फ्रॉम स्वीडन फिनलैंड नॉर्वे एंड डेनमार्क द स्कैंडिनेवियन कंट्रीज आर एग्जांपल्स फॉर अस वी नीड टू परहैप्स फॉलो दोस काइंड ऑफ मॉडल्स वुड लाइक लव टू डाइव इनटू the history of migration in bangalore for the last 1000 years hmm. so this has been at the borders of three states what we call it so this is a land which had tamil speakers which had kannada speakers and telugu speakers at all points of time in history some of the inscription stones show all these three languages then came the british who shifted from shirampatna to here in 1810 and established a military cantonment they brought with them certain people who spoke tamil into this so they came even before that uh, shaji and the uh, bijapur kingdom had brought marathas here so there's a marathi speaking population which speaks a pure marathi which is not even spoken in maharashtra now it's an old version of marathi and this has been a place where the urdu speaking community has been there 10 to 15% so it's a melting pot in historically speaking and even now and one would argue that perhaps the local kannada speaker are in a minority but a growing city is also a global city right so it's not just citizens from india but also citizens from the world who are making it their home and that's the way we should imagine ourselves as a global city and and what is the reason of migration to bangalore primary reason was the salubrious climate which then brought the educational institutions tata set up the indian institute of science in 1890s and so therefore there came a crowd of people who were now talented and educated so therefore the industries came to tap into this talent the public sector units like bel bhel iti were set up here in the 60s they worked on a pool of educational support which was coming from the students that public sector brought with it Uh, diversity from all across india who realized that this was a great place it was a pensioners paradise a retired persons dream and so it kept attracting and then the software industry took off here and then you know the rest is i think before software industry why it's called the silicon valley of uh, india uh, a lot of hardware companies ha uh, julet packard was one of the first to set itself up here uh, texas instruments yes. was one of the first in 1970s correct correct and some of my classmates uh, joined um, Texas instrument then in the 80s they okay. joined it and they loved it and so that was there so and uh, like larger parts of south india and states like rajasthan face a lot of water scarcity yes. today right and people are forced to migrate to other states correct and will this what like historically has it always been like that it's leaving new old cities deserted and So there are different crises in different parts of India Rajasthan and Gujarat are dry uh, land where climate change again hits itself but also 
the fact that rainfall patterns are becoming erratic and water yeah. is scarce and the urban aspiration and demand is very high now right so previously we could do with very little water most houses in rajasthan had tankas and only the tanka water rainwater was good yeah. enough for them for the whole year but now the pipe water supply in 135 liters per capita per day kind of aspiration that is there the washing machine in the house that puts too much pressure yeah. which the ecosystem cannot handle and so a lot of people migrate. Then there is the consequence of the green revolution. In Punjab, for example, groundwater tables are falling dramatically because of the green revolution and the wheat monoculture that we cultivated there. And then, of course, the fertilizers and pesticides we sprayed on the land which contaminated the water and therefore you have cancer and the Cancer Express runs from Punjab to Rajasthan. Clear consequence of the green revolution and water misuse, right? Um, the whole Gangetic Basin that I talked about, um, which is so fertile and rich, uh, now sees uh, falling groundwater tables, which are captured by satellites because it affects the gravity of the Earth itself. Imagine the kind of impact we have. You know that two satellites which go can pick up a gravitational anomaly and then say that groundwater table in this part of the world is falling. So food security created water insecurity. Because the food came at the cost of water, right? So India, Green Revolution had tremendous impact on water. Our energy demand, we know when we got independence, we were generating something like 1,750 megawatts of energy. Now it's the installed capacity is some 350 gigawatts of energy. But all the energy, thermal power plants, nuclear power plants, except wind, needs water. Even solar needs water to wash the panels, right? So energy, agriculture, these are the critical ones. Uh, and they have local impacts everywhere. So therefore, when we write a water policy, we have to write it coterminous with our agriculture policy and energy policy and our forest policy because the forests are the source of the water. But we write them independently. The energy policy is written without the water policy and so on and so forth. The agriculture policy looks for food sufficiency, but because departments are तो ये मैं क्रिटिसाइज नहीं कर रहा हूं मैं बोल रहा हूं कि ये समझ हमें आ रही है दिस इज द अंडरस्टैंडिंग वी आर गेटिंग नाउ तो हमें तय करना है कि हम इसको मिलके कैसे लिखा जाए और उल्टा हम क्या कर रहे हैं प्लानिंग कमीशन जैसा एक इंस्टीट्यूशन था जो ये कर सकता था देयर वाज अ प्लानिंग कमीशन व्हिच कुड हैव डन इट वी डिसॉल्व दैट एंड वी बिल्ड द नीति आयोग द नीति आयोग विल क्विकली हैव टू टेक ऑन द रिस्पांसिबिलिटी ऑफ द प्लानिंग कमीशन एंड लुक एट इट इन अ होलिस्टिक फैशन अदरवाइज वी विल स्ट्रगल तो कुछ-कुछ गवर्नेंस के मेजर्स है कुछ-कुछ इंस्टीट्यूशनल मेजर्स है कुछ-कुछ हिस्टोरिकल मेजर्स है जो हमें समझना है और हमें काम करना है उसमें। I want to talk about the the impact of green revolution on ecology. Can you go into that? देखो तीन साल फिर से ड्राउट आया 60, 65, 66, 67, 66, 67, 68. Three years of drought where we also fought a war with uh, the drought meant that we did not have enough food, as was prescribed. In a, some people argue that we had enough food, but it was wheat and rice, which was a shortage. And therefore, because the urbanites were u- eating wheat and rice, so they felt the shortage more. Joki millets khate the, bajara, jawar, ya ragi, to unko utna shortage mehsus nahi hua. Lekin jo wheat khate the, gehu khate the, unka mehsus hua. Anyway, C. Subramaniam was the finance minister, M. S. Swaminathan, they go to the United States, they meet up with Norman Borlaug. Norman Borlaug in Mexico is growing the high-yield variety dwarf wheat. 17,000 tons of that is brought to India and the Green Revolution is unleashed because we wanted to be food secure. And within three years, we were food secure. These farmers did a remarkable job. But the Green Revolution succeeded only in the places where there was a bank loan for borewell drilling. 
So 10 hectares and more if you had, then the farmer got a loan from the Development Cooperation Bank to drill a bore well. And those farmers accessed that loan, drilled bore well, got groundwater, grew the wheat and increased. What happened was that the small and marginal farmer and the landless felt, they started voting for the Communist Party of India in these 12 districts. It's a very interesting study on it. So there was political ramifications. Then the government understood it through a study and then made sure that the loans were given to all small and medium farmers and made sure that they also had access yeah. to water. And th- therefore, the Green Revolution then became even more bigger. But what we did was we shifted to monoculture, high yield variety, demanded more fertilizer, more pesticides, more weedicides and more water. So the demand on water went up. We started to grow three crops in areas where we would only grow one crop of rice in the Tanjavur belt. That created the Kaveri conflict. Saw the groundwater depletion in Haryana and Punjab. So it unleashed a force we we were not ready to understand or we were not capable of understanding. And it's leaving a legacy of cancer, of dependence on fertilizer, pesticides, weedicides, which is enormous and a demand on water which is completely insatiable. We cannot meet it with the resources that we have. It, it is historically said that the US enterprise, particularly US fertilizer enterprise, took advantage of India's green revolution. So we love these, um, what what is it called? The conspiracy theories. Yeah. Some people believe in it. Uh, the fact remains that we became food sufficient. Yeah. Without the green revolution, we would not have yeah. had uh, for sufficiency. But it also means that our go-downs were full of grains which were rotting. So that also was a bit. Now whether the war industry, the military industrial complex or the fertilizer fellows actually had some greater dreams. I am a bit skeptical on that. But there are a lot of people who believe it. There's a lot of opinions on that because the carbide was one of the, the reasons that the ramifications that came out of the, the Union Carbide incident in Bhopal, right? Amithil isocyanate. See, I think many a thing times we don't do things out of villainy or evil. It's just the ordinary, what's in, in um, English, that's a beautiful phrase. It's the tyranny of small decisions. We don't think of the long-term ramification and all those add up <coughs> and cause a big problem. <coughs> We'll fill up the lake. We want some land for a site. We don't think what the implication of it. The problem is sorted out. But that's the tyranny of small decisions. You think that <coughs> India could have done better without so much rampant use of fertilizer and pesticides back in the day? Because we are paying the price now, whatever the decision was taken 60 years ago. So then it falls into the democracy trap. Without the fertilizer subsidy, we would not have had the food security, right? But the fertilizer subsidy and the groundwater explosion resulted in groundwater getting free electricity. That free electricity came from a political decision of giving to farmers subsidized fertilizer and subsidized uh, electricity for groundwater. That decision could not be taken back by any political party. So again, I would believe it's the negative dividend of democracy and our five-year competitive democratic politics that results in this kind of uh, misadventure, if you have it. Then it locks us into inefficiencies and problems. And we don't know how to solve it. Then do you consider people at fault? But but people are uh, struggling for survival in India for, for the last many, many decades, right? Because whenever... There has been uh, visionaries in the government, maybe like Chandra Babu Naidu or S.M. Krishna here, right? Uh, 
who focus on development uh, rather than giving subsidies subsidies and try to develop the cities uh, they were voted out so that's the development for whom is the question they yeah. ask and what do you mean what do we mean by development there are two essential models of development let's say the kerala model for want of a better word and the gujarat model yeah so yeah. the kerala model focuses on equity and schools polyclinics hospitals local democracy that's development in gujarat it's the industrial manufacturing models we have to choose between the two and we have to choose that in a democratic cycle so batao yeah. but uh, you can't compare right because uh, it's comparing apple with oranges whether kerala ka zyada better hai gujarat ka zyada better hai kaun tay karega who decides now right now there's a supreme court case being fought on by kerala government saying that we be discriminated on and the union government saying you are mismanaging your economy and yeah. the supreme court will sort it out i think uh, uh, again uh, there's a and then there's this west bengal right? uh-huh. you would know the better history would love to learn from you what happened there uh, in the name of communism and, uh, what it has resulted in so like i said when the green revolution came it benefited a few the rest felt left out the only way that you could bring social justice was through land reforms the only party which was capable of land reforms was the communist party yeah. the congress was incapable of land yeah. reforms because these were the two parties there right so in west bengal and kerala you went for large scale land reforms more so in kerala where a lot of the rich land owners lost their land and a lot of people got their land the, that people who got the land were the base for the communist party being yeah. elected again yeah. again but because you caught yourself into an imagination of industrialization is bad capitalism is bad so you locked yourself into particular form of socialism west bengal the land reforms did not happen as much as in kerala some amount of it happened but the rejection of capitalism was very strong so therefore industry state come and therefore development in come so they they are where they are right there yeah. but if you go to kerala the average lifespan of an average keralaite is the highest in india yeah. female literacy is the highest access to health is the best highest but economic growth is not there yeah now take gujarat the economic growth may be high but or maharashtra with economic growth may high but there are large scale deprivation starvation and adivasis especially face malnutrition and all those consequences are there so some of the rich have developed very well and the middle class has done well but the poorer classes have been left out which model of development do you choose i don't know you choose but in is in west bengal nobody has done well then अब आप वेस्ट बंगाल वाले से पूछोगे तो वो थोड़ी बोलेगा कि डन वेल तो अब वो ही वोट करेंगे ना जो पार्टी चाहिए देल वोट फॉर द पार्टी दे वांट एंड देल कंटिन्यूसली डू दैट दैट्स अ डेमोक्रेटिक साइकिल नाउ इट्स अप टू टू बी आर्ग्यूमेंट नो इंडस्ट्री टुडे वांट्स टू टच वेस्ट बंगाल एंड सो देर फोर लॉट ऑफ आर्ग्यूमेंट इज दैट यू लीव फ्रॉग पोल्यूशन industries left a huge pollution trail everywhere yeah. bhopal was a classic case as you are talking about yeah. gujarat in the pollution so now maybe you have a chance to get across the manufacturing stage into the service industries or to benign industries which are not polluting and then make your way out of it that's one argument but it's these are all discussion points but but yeah i'm just trying to to uh, go towards a solution which can as we earlier told can can unite these things so democracy is the solution and democracy will throw up whoever leaders people want and they will de- deliver what the solution is but the problem with democracy is that it's a five year cycle yeah. and that's something that we don't know how to crack and nowhere in the world have we able to crack it so yeah. it's not even in the us. us it's five years of capitalism or four years of capitalism with trump and then four years of uh, communism so called with within uh, 
Uh, the right wing calls it socialism. There's, that's no socialism there. That's also capitalism yeah. in any case. But a better example is Sweden or Finland, yes. where you have the social democrats and the conservatives, and it switches from right to left to along those lines. But these are all political issues. It's a slow, frustrating pace, but we have to go through it. But but the the goal here is can India it's not about following but can India leapfrog to where uh, the China GDP is or where US GDP is in the next 10 to 20 years? No, short answer is no. And why? China leapfrog because it started on a manufacturing base and yeah. it created havoc on the environment, the rivers, the swamps, everything was a mess. Uh, there was large scale exploitation of the labor, uh, which only the Communist Party could control through a very strict regime. You can't do that in the Indian context. The courts are there and they will take yeah. care of it. So the short answer is no. And, and, and why not the development model of the U.S.? Completely a consumption model based on uh, fiscal deficits of unbelievable proportions. It's only because the dollar is the only form of trading that they're able to do that. But if India were to get into that kind of a fiscal deficit trap, it will never be able to come out of it, right? So it's a difficult process. If you're able to manage even a 7% growth of GDP, it'll be a miracle. And we should do that with low inflation. Otherwise, you can inflate yeah. yourself to a $5 trillion goal with the 8% yeah. inflation or 10% inflation, $5 trillion or $10 trillion yeah. economy. But in real terms, what does it actually mean yeah. is a question that we have to answer. Uh, in this global scenario, then, then you have to be content with where we are. Uh, and the GDP per capita remains low. Yes. Yes. Unfortunately, yes. So we have to ensure that there is social justice and equity with it, right? Even now, of the GDP growth, 20 families benefit 70% or 80%. Yeah. Is that acceptable? Mm-hmm. We have to ask ourselves that and see how we can. But, but, but I don't see a solution to, to hire the GDP per capita in India in the, in the let's say next 10, 20 years also. How, how will that happen? And how will it at least reach among the top 20, 30 countries globally if we have to provide a better quality life to our India? Then I, I think the solution to, to the problems that we discussed could be a higher GDP per capita where citizens become aware that uh, now uh, I demand from the government rather than be at the mercy. Right. So I'm no fiscal policy expert or financial expert, but in what I know of it, I think the path is difficult and we'll have to imagine ourselves not as a manufacturing economy. But not create a manufacturing havoc. Correct. Uh, but a service economy. And I don't know how that service economy will itself deliver that kind of growth perennially. IT services economy tried to do it, but it could only limit to it very, it became very limited. Correct. Correct. It just, just 200 billion. It, uh, we need an economy which is a parallel of trillions of dollars too. I, I know, but without it being an export oriented one, how yeah. do we manage it is a question that I think the finance experts will have to answer. So, uh, 60% of the India's population still works in agriculture, right? Yeah. Contributing to 18% of India GDP. Uh, the water issues that are happening right now and going to happen, how are it, how is it impacting their livelihood? Because. So it's becoming more and more uncertain. Even that little productivity they show uh, is becoming uncertain. Farming is now a very, very seriously risky yeah. 
proposition yeah. right and you never know when the rains will fail or when the yeah. thunder will come so it's going to be a huge challenge for us to manage the uh, the food economy for ourselves and farming economy so therefore be prepared for large scale migration from the rural areas and that will not solve our issues right that will just uh, multiply the issues because india hasn't been made in a model that that us was made of large scale agriculture right where a fa- single farmer would own yes. hundreds yes. of hectares yes. of land yes yes india is made up of very very small farmers yes, yes. but that's not uh, now we've reached uh, one hectare is the yeah. average uh, land holding size size to two acres two and a half acres now is that productive enough in the yeah. capitalist mode of production no, no because it's suboptimal in terms of investment in capital machinery and other machinery so how do we do land consolidation at the same time protect the rights of these uh, small and marginal farmers so they don't have to yeah. sell it in distress it's very very difficult, very difficult. and for the 60% of india's population the migration that is uh, happening uh, right now yeah. uh, that is resulting in these people becoming the urban labor yes Yeah. and it's the construction industry which absorbs most of them because construction can take unskilled labor and give them some yeah. form of employment but how long can a construction yeah. boom last on itself yeah. in itself right the, there are other crises for example the springs in the himalayas are drying up water is the only source of spring so a lot of mountain villages are just up and migrating completely village after village is deserted people move out or in places where the uh, villages are it's only women and old yeah. men who are there the young men have migrated out so migration is a reality so there are two ways of looking at it one is to accept this reality and then design our cities to be better prepared to receive migrants right i'll just give you an example in lima in peru what they tried out was that in the stations because they didn't have much migration coming from any other yeah. place but railway stations there would be booths set up where people's skills would be matched let's say you're a good carpenter or you have some carpentry skill or construction skill they would point out to the areas of the city where there's construction work happening so yeah. you seek your employment there or if you're coming for education or upskilling yourself this is the place you have to go and upskill yourself and they would tell you give yourself one year in the city if you're able to fit into the labor market stay otherwise make yeah. a choice of going back right so this that kind of a welcoming space for migrants is not something that we have created yeah. migrants find their own route through friends and relatives explore the job market are exploited many a time and then sure. somehow manage to fit in I think we should be more prepared structurally to receive them yes. and make sure that our economy bounces with the kind of input they bring in. That's a world view. That's a way of looking at it. So uh, uh, another issue with migration I want to discuss is now US is getting criticized internally, externally that they have there opened their gates to to migration like anything from from uh, huh. from the south, hmm. right? From uh, South America. and uh, it's it's a reason that uh, the current government what is speculated is the current government what their wants their vote bank uh, the, the, is it also true that you are seeing a similar pattern so this has been the conundrum with the free market capitalism economy what does the free market argue that both labor and capital should flow where it is most efficiently used yeah. you allowed capital to flow but you didn't allow labor to flow yes. because you created national boundaries yes. right fortress europe or the usa how can then the free market work when one part of the capitalist economy is constrained yeah. migration is inevitable yeah. in this model and what do you then do with the migrants you can't pack them all off to rwanda as yeah. the uk is hoping to do or you can't create fences and um, boundaries which will keep them out because it's part of the 
ऑफ द गेम राइट कर लो जितना चिल्लाना है वो तो आएंगे आर्टिफिशियल बाउंड्री कितनी बना लो कितना भी बना लो आप यहां से जा रहे हैं ना डंकी बना पिक्चर कहां यहां से जा रहे हैं आप कनाडा जा रहे हैं गुजरात से जा रहे हैं यूएसए थ्रू कनाडा रूट गुजरात विच इज अ मॉडल स्टेट देर सो मेनी पीपल हु डाई ट्राइंग टू क्रॉस द बाउंड्रीज एंड गेट देर एंड इट्स कल्चर देयर फॉर पीपल टू गो और पंजाब वाले तो कनाडा जाएंगे तो इसको आप रोकने की कोशिश करो करो जितना कर बट यू सेड इट्स द रिफॉर्म इज नीडेड टू बेटर गिव अ बेटर क्वालिटी एंड लाइफ टू माइग्रेंट गिव दम बेटर स्ट्रक्चर टू माइग्रेंट्स बिल्कुल उस पर कोई काम नहीं कर रहा उस पर काम नहीं कर रहा वी नीड अ मिनिस्ट्री फॉर माइग्रेशन वेयर देर इज अ मिनिस्ट्री विच लुक्स एट वॉट दीज क्रिटिकल इश्यूज आर इन डिफरेंट जोग्राफीज बिकॉज पीपल समटाइम्स डू टेम्पररी माइग्रेशन वेन दे गेट बैक वेन द रेन्स आर कमिंग टू एग्रीकल्चर समटाइम्स इट्स परमानेंट माइग्रेशन एंड द माइग्रेंट इज एब्सोल्यूटली क्लूलेस अबाउट वॉट द सिटी इज ऑल अबाउट राइट सो ओनली इफ यूज अ रिलेटिव और अ फ्रेंड दैट इज एंड देन वीमेन if there's single women wanting to migrate to a city or if it's a women dominated family what is the chance that you will not be exploited right so what are you doing about it nothing that is not the way to work and what uh, our previous house help came from calcutta west hmm. bengal and she said she was the she was the only member her three uh, her two sons and uh, husband stayed back in west bengal right Uh, the reason she said she migrated here for a 15 to 20000 uh, yeah. rupees monthly job was the cost of labor because of bangladeshi migration correct went down so much that bangladeshis were ready to work for 2000 rupees a month for right. eight hour jobs right yeah so it's a global uh, issue it's not no longer now so there's no point in trying to look at bangladeshi migrants as being and you can't hold them back you can't how can you hold them back you can't now bangladesh economy at least in the recent past was doing better and uh, in terms of per capita gdp bangladesh is ahead of yeah. india right yeah. so that maybe at a point of time the bangladeshi will say ki ye west bengal se migrants aa rahe hain hamare pe barbies migrant ko to log hi rahe wo log bhi wahi kar rahe everybody plays this game of my nation or anything but the people what are they looking for they're looking for a livelihood yes they're looking for survival right bilkul ha survival for livelihood and globally we should be more welcoming globally we have created such stupid barriers why should people die in the mediterranean why should yeah. people die in mexico in the sonora desert walking humanity naam ki cheez ko to bhool gaye hum log phook dale hain ek ek cheez jo main discuss karna chahta hu aapse पॉपुलेशन वाइज ग्लोबली वी हैव एक्सप्लोडेड नेवर प्रिपेयर की दुनिया में आठ बिलियन से ऊपर लोग होंगे एंड इंडिया विल वी आर ऑल्सो अनप्रिपेयर दैट वी वुड बी द मोस्ट पॉपुलर कंट्री नो दिस वॉज एक्सपेक्टेड नो बट लुक एट द्राइट साइड द टोटल फर्टिलिटी रेट इन तमिलनाडु एंड केरला इज नाउ बिलो रिप्लेसमेंट पॉपुलेशन इन कर्नाटका आंध्र प्रदेश महाराष्ट्र इट्स ओनली फोर स्टेट्स विच हैव अ टोटल फर्टिलिटी रेट मोर देन टू पॉइंट वन and everybody knows that development is the best contraceptive that that's the way that you control your population the total attention of all other states should be in these states to help facilitate such that the population growth is automatically stopped because of development yeah. or because of economic growth right um, it's not rocket science this is known to us since 1971 ki ye hone wala hai karke and there are enough models for us to to, to yeah. tell us to पर वो फैमिली प्लानिंग को हम लोगों ने छोड़ दिया क्योंकि इमरजेंसी का जो नेगेटिव इनपुट आया तो उसके बाद हम छोड़ दिए बट आई थिंक समटाइम्स वी डोंट डू द ऑब्वियस विच ऑलवेज इज सरप्राइजिंग फिगर इट आउट 
so some of these issues have been because the women participation in workforce in india has been one of the poorest globally correct correct and there has not been made enough attempts to solve it structurally correct you are absolutely right but you see female literacy is uh, clearly associated with less population yes. and less uh, and kerala has been able to achieve yes. that because uh, women's literacy yeah. is there and and then women's participation in the workforce is even more of a motivator just go 50 kilometers from bangalore go to rural kolar the women are capable of delivering every service that is possible and capable of they lack two things one is the english language which then opens up the worldwide yeah. web and all the contacts and the networks that you do second is mobility transportation in the villages if you want to get from one village to the town you take the public transport it take you 2 hours 3 hours yeah. to get there and then 3 hours to get back and then you have a family to take care of if you just increase the roads and mobility you are unlocking women's participation to a large extent right and that's what we should look for that is so much common sense ha huh? dekho pinia mein the manufacturing the clothes uh, industry there were droves of women yeah. who come from tumkur uh, other places why are we not capable of making life easier for yeah. them through better transport services the metro yeah. metro we want to run to the airport why there shouldn't a metro run from tumkur yeah. to pinia so that all the women yeah. can get there on time and then go back there are markets that are created there there is a very gender specific landscape that's emerged as an urban planning area what have we done specifically to address the requirements of that space what do, and automatically the market does that na kaam khatam hote saath hi bahar mein grocery kapda yeah. sab mil jayega so you can whatever your family needs yeah. you buy and you go now why should it be informal why should it not be a formal system that delivers yeah. it why should our bus service not be more stronger there yeah this we, is just a gender sensitivity that we have to show we lagged in design you can say yeah 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 so urban design is a critical issue and sensitivity no planning for gender planning for children planning for the aged and the handicapped where the where is accessible this is like humne bangalore mein metro bana diya bina soche samjhe ki metro ke ramifications kya honge agle 15 20 saal mein आपको मेट्रो की कहानी बताऊं कि मेट्रो स्टेशन में टॉयलेट्स नहीं हुआ करते थे जब हम जाके सिविक ग्रुप्स वी सेट कि भाई देर शुड बी अ टॉयलेट दी सेट दैट आई एम नॉट अ सुलभ शौचालय पर्सन आई एम अ मेट्रो पर्सन सो इट टूक थ्री इयर्स ऑफ परसिएशन बिफोर टॉयलेट्स केम अप इन मेट्रो स्टेशन एंड इफ दिस इज द रिमार्केबल इनसेंसिटिविटी दैट यू शो वेन रनिंग सच ट्रांसपोर्टेशन सिस्टम फॉरगेट वॉट इम्पैक्ट इट हैज ऑन द सिटी डिजाइन इट सेल्फ बट इवन विद इन द मेट्रो इट सेल्फ i know we have to build more sensitivity let me not get angry about it but and, and what is required to build more sensitivity then a lot of it comes from empathy a lot of it comes from a direct contact with the kind of deprivations people feel only then do you understand what it means right so if you are to take a public transport then you understand what needs to be remedied in public transport if you go in a red light bulb car and you in an ac right. car and you come back you don't have the sense of what uh, the city needs so we need more such i think a perfect example is delhi metro the because i'm forgetting the name the architect of delhi metro sridharan yes completed in record time with all these facilities from ground zero and now delhi metro is going to merit going Bilkul. to all the hubs right bilkul uh, so it's a world class example of what a will and intention can do exactly and the tragic thing about india or the specific thing about india is that it's all individual driven yes it's not the system it's an individual in the system who makes the difference if it was not for shridharan delhi metro would not have been what yeah. it was right so 
our dependency on individuals, even in water sector, now we take Rajendra Singh's name, Tarun Bharat Sangh, he did this, Anna Hazare, he did this. We never take a systemic yeah. <laughs> structural key. There is no rinse and repeat. In exactly. You are absolutely ki, right. Ki Bangalore could have just copied Delhi ah. Metro brick by brick. Nothing else. Bilkul. Bilkul. <laughs> हमेशा <laughs> So I love to talk to farmers, well diggers, fishers, so people who are on the ground and I make it a habit to listen to these people. So for me, the solution for the water crisis in Bangalore will come from the well diggers who will dig a million wells, which will recharge all the groundwater. In the process, the well diggers will get a livelihood. The wastewater and the lakes will be maintained by fishers who will make a living out of fish in the lakes. They'll be responsible for removing water hyacinth and plastics and taking care of the lake as a water body, right? Not the middle class will go around in circles or clockwise or anti-clockwise. From them, they'll, you'll only get complaints. But those who are stake is in the game. They will do it. One of my favorite stories is, is uh, a town called Vijaypura, which is 40,000 population, just close to Devanali Airport. Sewage, raw sewage flows in a drain there. There's no sewage treatment plant because nobody had the money to set up a sewage treatment plant. Nobody wanted an STP next to their land to Nibana. Sewage flow hai. Farmers there pick up the raw sewage, treat it on their own land with small pits, and then grow mulberry, which then goes to become silk. The silk saris are made from sewage. We, I call it shit to silk. The entire sewage of Vijaypura town is consumed by farmers as a productive fertilizer, and they make a livelihood of it. The silkworm cocoon chomps on the mulberry leaf on a day-to-day basis. It certifies the quality of the mulberry leaf. If there's heavy metal, it'll die. It's doing the job of the pollution control board, which is not doing any of the job at all. So on a daily basis, right? Then the silkworm itself becomes a cocoon and then it becomes fiber. The fiber itself is very sensitive. The whole process is so sensitive that nothing, no imbalance can occur there. If imbalance occurs, everything is disrupted. And there's a solution. So my question is, should the farmer be paid by the town of Vijaypura for taking care of the sewage or should the farmer pay the town for the manure or fertilizer he gets? It's a completely financially sustainable model. It works there and farmers have achieved it. Similarly, I've seen in Jakur Lake that fishermen keep the lake clean, right? And they do it because they get fish from it, right? So my day-to-day is in talking to these fishermen. Today morning before I came here, I was talking to a borewell driller, a filter borewell driller. It's a father-son duo who come from Madurai and drill these shallow borewells, 100 feet deep only, tapping into the shallow aquifer. But it's a skill. It's an art. So that's my day. I spend time talking to them and then seeing where the solution fit or what will happen in the So this is our listening time, right? What what part of your time goes in building the solution, making sure the execution, which is the most important part? Most of it is nudging solutions. So we are, the, the Devanali project I was talking about is the first project in India where treated wastewater from Bangalore is becoming drinking water for Devanali town. It's toilet to tap. And this happens through a process of the city institutions treating water of 
great quality. STP is working perfectly. So, and then the lakes being revived so that the lake gets water. Then it, it filters through to the well. The well is revived through the traditional well digging community. And we put up a state of the art water treatment plant through entrepreneurs, young entrepreneurs who are now doing a business of treating wastewater and selling it as the market, right? So my job is to bring all these players together and say, this is the goal and we can get water to Devanali. By itself, no institution can imagine all the solutions. So my work is this. I'll show you where I'm going to go. This is the water of the water. When you have your STP, if you don't have your STP, then these people will drink water. Let's see consequence. And people say, I've never seen this. They don't see it. Well, we've in the CPHEO manual of the government of India, they've given up wells as a source of water. But that well, one single well, which has kachua in it and machli in it, can give 250,000 liters of water in a 15, 12-hour pumping cycle, right? And then that's portable water. And it's at 1 rupee 19 paisa a kiloliter, like I was telling you. Yes. So my job is to do this large canvas visioning and get all the players, violin, bajao, guitar, bajao, drum, bajao, saat bajao, sab milki bajao, to yeh orchestra banega. Apna apna bajate rahoge, to kuch nahi banega. Mine is the conductor of the symphony. And what has been, aapne shuru kaise kiya tha? Serendipity and just luck. And and it just became the driving force for your life. That and old monk on a Friday evening. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Both are driving forces. In the sense, there's great joy in finding solutions. What you figure out is that when people take credit for the solutions, they do a remarkable lot. And if you know that you're the spider in the web, there's a personal satisfaction that you get out of it. And then if the whole thing plays itself out well, like today, people came from Canada to see what's happening in Devanali. And they're going to take that message to Africa. And they'll do that because they see the simplicity of the solution. And they take it out there. It's a great sense of satisfaction. A well digger digs a well, finds water, sends me a WhatsApp video. Sir, pani mil gaya. Mujhe khushi hoti hai. Kyunki usko kaam mila. Because of the work we did at policy level. And they're digging recharge wells. And every day I get 500 photographs. Koi talab saab kar raha hai. Koi kuma wana raha hai. Koi wastewater use kar raha hai. इन लोगों की खुशी में मेरी खुशी है बस यही है कि मेरा जो मेमोरी है मोबाइल फोन का वो खत्म हो जाता है बहुत जल्दी सो हैव टू डू समथिंग ऑन दैट बट अदरवाइज यू नो इन इंडिया वर्क इज अ प्लेजर इफ यू फाइंड जॉय इन द लिटलेस्ट ऑफ गेम्स वी गेट एंड हैज इट नेवर बॉदर्ड यू कि फॉर अ लार्ज पार्ट ऑफ दिस थर्टी एट ईयर्स ऑफ कॉन्ट्रीब्यूशन देर हैज बीन फाइनेंशियल रिवॉर्ड जो था उसका इंसेंटिव था दैट वॉज नेवर देयर सो See, you have to make your compromise with what you think is right. I don't own a car. I use public transport as yeah. much as possible and I do that. And so money-wise, maybe, maybe, uh, but there's enough and more satisfaction that gets you there and enough and more money for what you need to do. So it's not really a compromise. When your expectations are low, then. Yeah. But, but you never associated with yourself with a, with a body that, that you could have a regular income, uh, through the work. So, in Hindu, in Hindu mythology, they say that either Saraswati is your guest or Lakshmi is your guest. Yeah. You can't have both of them. So you have to make a choice, right? So I choose Saraswati. I, that's the excuse I give myself. Yeah. But I'm a lousy entrepreneur. I'm a lousy marketeer. I'm a lousy person to charge consultancy. And that's a weakness in me. Yeah. It's not the, it's not the American way. This is the sort of Indian 
yeah. way of doing it. And I wish, and I think my caste has a lot to do with what the way I think about it. I could have been from the trading community and I would have done better, <laughs> but no, it's, it's all part of life. And, and during these 38 years, has not been there many moments where you got, you, you temporarily gave up. So there's no excuse. See, once you have the intellectual firepower and you understand your privilege, you're among top 2% in India if you know what the whole of India's economy is about. There's no excuse yeah. then for not finding it. And then there's the cleverness in where you position yourself. Now I sit with the Bangalore Water Supply and Sewerage Board as part of the Technical Approval Committee, right? That seat at the table does not come by itself. You have to have the right network, the right influence, yeah. and then you have the right capabilities of delivering, and the institution should respect yeah. it. Sit with the government of Karnataka in terms of the technical approval committee for the Jal Jeevan yeah. mission scheme. So I'm able to influence the BWSSB to a limited extent, the government of Karnataka, but find that seat at the table. Don't complain that the government is doing wrong things. Go there and get it done right, whatever you think is right. There's no excuse for the young Indian who's so educated, um, there's no point in throwing stones at the caravan. Yeah. You get on the camel rider street to make sure that the caravan heads in the right direction. And how many years it took you to get a seat at the table to make your voice heard? Pajisal. Pajisal. Because you have to build a brand, right? This is as much as podcast yeah. or anything. You have to build your brand. And what is the brand? You can't be associated with the product. Let's say I'm making a water filter. Then they'll say, Ki, apna water filter bechna hai. you yeah. have to be neutral. You have to be advisory. You have to be non-tied to pecuniary benefits or monetary yeah. benefits. And your, your advice should be valuable in a generic sense. So for that, you have to work assiduously and you have to be at the right place and you have to do the but right it took, took long 25 years to, to make that happen if you are smart enough because there is social media to amplify Bilkul. and the knowledge base that you are tapping into the world as a knowledge base internet I believe last 10 compounding confusing compounding has become confusing the choice now for the youngsters is how to choose the right knowledge frame. For us, where do we get knowledge from? Yeah. At a point of time when I was studying my urban planning, the only place I could get uh, information on American planning institutions was my library. Yeah. And there were only three libraries in India which had those books that I could refer to as what urban uh, yeah. American planning was. Now, my mobile phone tells me what it is. Now I don't know which journal which, to which depend on. Which source is the right ah, one? Ah, <laughs> That's, it's a spoil for choice, right? Yeah. ஒடிசாங்கிங் with great physical abilities. They understand a well very sensitively, right? So they understand when the wall can collapse or not, so they are able to take care of it. If there's a gas inside, they'll put a light 
you know, candle inside. And if it goes out, they understand it's carbon monoxide. So they'll make sure that the carbon monoxide is taken out and then they go. So they never have accidents. They do this. And this community did not have work because the borewell culture had come and nobody wanted well. So my quest was, what do I do to help them get a livelihood? So when I was able to write the rainwater harvesting policy and bylaw for Bangalore, we made sure that it, we wrote a recharge well as mandatory, right? So now they are busy digging recharge wells. And recharge wells take rooftop rainwater and push it into the aquifer. So they had to be upskilled. They only knew how to dig a well to draw water out. But how to put water back in? What should be the quality of water? It, took, it takes half a day for a conversation with them and they understand it and then they do it. Now, the more than 500 families to 1,000 families who are doing recharge wells all across and making a livelihood out of it and helping the city become water secure. And these 1,000 families are in Bangalore? Uh, in the peripheral areas of Bangalore. So they used to be previously within the city, but now they're near Sarjapur, near Ramnagaram, near Anikal. There are at least 14 villages where these families are there. There's one particular village uh, near Sarjapur where all the 134 families are well diggers and they do this well digging community, uh, well digging job. And now they're all uh, well-placed or well-taken care of? Some of them have done very well for themselves. Some of them who are entrepreneurial go to Hyderabad, go to Coimbatore and dig wells, and they're well-known and they're uh, doing really well. Many of them have better jobs than they would otherwise have. Some of them who are not entrepreneurial uh, have at least daily work or some work. There could be a lot more work for them. And are there new wells coming up in Bangalore? Because I've never heard of it. Um, a good friend of mine from Friends of Lakes called Ram Prasad and India Cares Foundation, they just finished a well in Lalbagh in the traditional way with stonework. So there are many groups who are now working on it and they're bringing funds from everywhere. They're bringing expertise and digging it. And Lalbagh mein unko 25 foot pe paani bhi mil gaya. So, what hai? And these wells, uh, uh, just, you know, curiosity, they don't pose any uh, uh, risk of people... So we make sure that there are safety grids uh, at two levels, one at uh, the mid-level, at the ground level, and the other is at from the top, and you make it absolutely secure. We've done wells in schools, uh, government schools, where the rainwater harvesting has brought the well back, but we make sure that there's a lock and key, and there are two levels of security. I think what India has lost the culture in modernization is of hand pumps. I belong to a small city called Meerut. 30 years ago, there were hand pumps huh. in every home. Huh. Now they have disappeared. Because the groundwater, te- the hand pump can lift water from 120 feet to 200 feet. Those of foot ke baad na chapa kal bolate hain se Bihar mein sab. Those of foot ke baad aapko 20-25 baar maanna padta hai jab ki paani aaya hai. To those of se gehra chala gaya to then they've got electrosite, electric, uh, electric pumps and motors. So that's gone. So India mein uh, jo groundwater level hai, wo kaise kaise decrease ho agar historically aap agar bata sakein. हम लोग सालाना 250 क्यूबिक किलोमीटर पानी निकाल के बाहर फेंकते हैं ग्राउंड वाटर से निकाल के एग्रीकल्चरल क्रॉप्स इंडस्ट्रियल अर्बन यूज के लिए 250 क्यूबिक किलोमीटर से ईयर वी हैव 33 मिलियन टू 40 मिलियन वेल्स एंड बोरवेल्स द नेक्स्ट टू कंट्रीज आर चाइना एंड यूएसए टूगेदर चाइना एंड यूएसए डोंट ड्रा आउट टू फिफ्टी क्यूबिक किलोमीटर एज मच वॉटर एज वी ड्रा आउट इंडिविजुअली फॉर आवर सेल्स वी आर द वर्ल्ड लार्जेस्ट यूजर ऑफ ग्राउंड वाटर and we are completely dependent on groundwater for all our agricultural needs 50% of our urban needs right this has happened because surface water is scarce water comes only in four months and we have to hold on to it in our rivers and rivers are far away yeah. dams are far away so therefore groundwater is ubiquitous so slowly incrementally we become groundwater dependent so for us our survival depends on understanding groundwater hydrogeology making sure we recharge enough making sure we draw less and so for us, the goal is that if you're able to bring back the water table to an open well level, then we are 
water sector. And water's right now level in most of the wells that in Bangalore it's thousand eight hundred feet in parts of the city, but in Kaban Park it's twenty feet. If you've okay. done enough recharge, you can get it back at 20 feet. In Devanali, the well I talk about is at 14 feet or 15 feet. If you're able to maintain your lake, fill it with rainwater and treated wastewater, the groundwater table will come up. And you think that is a movement that is happening? Haan, bilkul. And that has to happen more and more. Every one of our lake has to be saved. Every one of our lake has to be filled with water and it has to recharge that before. And we have to have demand management. You now new wells are getting constructed and these wells owners are demanding ki, uh, get me 20 feet off. Huh, no. So you have to be patient, right? It's not the up. चालीस साल लगा दिया आपने पानी खाली करने में और आप बना दिया वेल और अब चाहते हो कि एक साल में पानी आ जाए तो ये नहीं होने वाला है आपको पेशेंस रखना पड़ेगा और पानी रिचार्ज करते रहना पड़ेगा और अपने आप आएगा पानी वापस सो दैट्स द बिगेस्ट थिंग दैट वी हैव लॉस्ट वी लॉस्ट पेशेंस नाउ डेज विथ वॉन्ट एवरीथिंग रिजल्ट इंस्टेंट दो मिनट हाँ तो वो पानी देगा बट सी वॉट हैपन्स इज द ट्यूबवेल और बोरवेल ओनली टॉक्स टू अस ट्वाइस पहली बार जब पानी मिला सो इट सेस पानी आ गया दूसरी बार खाली हो गया एंड ओपन वेल टॉक्स टू यू ऑन अ डेली बेसिस आप जाओगे लेवल कम हो रहा है समर हैज कम प्लीज यूज मी लेस बारिश का मौसम आ गया द वाटर टेबल विल कम आउट यू कैन यूज मी अबेंटली ईयर ऑफ ड्राउट यूज वाटर लेस ईयर ऑफ गुड मॉनसून यूज प्लेंटी दैट कनेक्शन बिटवीन वाटर अवेलेबिलिटी एज अ रिसोर्स एंड आवर कंजम्पन हैज बीन लॉस्ट बिकॉज द टैप डज नॉट टेल यू वेयर द वाटर कम्स फ्रॉम हाउ मच वाटर इज देर इन द डैम हाउ मच ऑफ इट कैन यू कैन यूज इट डजेंट टेल यू एनीथिंग द ओनली वे द टैप कैन टॉक टू यू इज इफ द स्केरसिटी वैल्यू ऑफ वाटर इज ट्रांसमिटेड टू यू एज अ बिल दैट्स नॉट हैपनिंग सो इधर यू टॉक एंड लिसन टू द वेल और यू लिसन टू द बिल विच द टैप ब्रिंग्स दीज आर द टू फॉर्म्स ऑफ कम्युनिकेशन इफ वी हैव लॉस्ट बोथ we will over exploit the resource thank you so much sir my pleasure I'm so grateful to you no. for doing this conversation right. and the work that you do right uh, it's my pleasure to be here and thank you for a very interesting and wide spanning conversation thank you so much